there was a four-alarm fire at a warehouse on the docks. And they called in, don't worry, it didn't really, it's just a joke, it didn't really. And they called in all the fire departments from the area. They all came down with their hook and ladder trucks. But the blaze was raging. No one could get close to it. No one could get close enough to try to fight the fire. Then they heard in the distance faint siren wailing, getting closer, getting closer. Who could it be? All the local fire departments were already there. And as the siren approached, they saw who was it? It was the Jewish Volunteer Fire Department. Yes, the local Jewish Fire Department, Volunteer Fire Department, and they were coming to offer their help, their assistance in putting out this four-alarm fire. And the, all the other trucks were around, parked around the, uh, the, the blaze and the, the firemen, the firefighters were standing around and they saw this, the, the Jewish Volunteer Fire Department fire truck. It was an old fire truck, an old second-hand fire truck that the Jewish Volunteer Fire Department had bought on eBay. And it was this old fire truck, but they, they were going, they were going so fast down the dock toward the, the warehouse, toward the blaze, and they came in full speed ahead. They were going, they were going, going, and they went straight into the flames, into the center of the blaze, and they started to fight the fire, and, and they put it out. They put it out. They were the heroes. They were the heroes. And the mayor of the town awarded them $50,000 for putting out the blaze. And the local news crews were there, and the news reporter asks Captain Goldstein, the captain of the Jewish Volunteer Fire Department, the news reporter says, Captain Goldstein, captain of the Jewish Volunteer Fire Department, you, you and your crew, you were so brave, you entered the thick of the fire, the flames in the middle, the midst of the flames, when nobody else could get close to it, and you were so brave, so courageous, and you put out the fire. Your truck just went straight there in the middle of the fire, and you put it out, and now you're winning $50,000, and wow, what are you going to do with that money? And Captain Goldstein says, first thing we're going to do is get brakes for that truck. <laughs> It's an old rabbi joke, but okay. I'm glad at least one person hadn't heard it. Okay. All right. Rabbi, I took your joke. You can't use that anymore. Okay. You can recycle it in a couple years. Okay. In life, there's gas and there's brakes. There's go and there's stop. Emotionally, we refer to these as love and respect. Love is the emotion that drives me closer to my beloved. That's the go, the green light. Respect is the brakes. Respect is stop, back off, be still, make space. And Kabbalistically, we refer to these as chesed, loving kindness, and gvura, self-restraint. And these two emotions are opposites but they are complementary, and they are really, ideally speaking, the two mainstays of every relationship. Every relationship has these two opposite but complementary emotions of love and respect.
However, if you were to ask yourself, which one of the two is more important? And what do I mean more important? They're both important. Well, let's say we're going to start with one and work on the other. Or we're going to start with one and we don't know if we're going to ever have the other. Which one do we want to have first? Which one is it essential that we have first? Or could it go either way? You could start from here and go there, start from there, go here. And the interesting thing is, if you think to yourself, you know, trying to figure out which one is, which one is more crucial, which one is more essential. Love is what I do for you. Respect is what I don't do because of you. And when you're trying to figure out which one is more crucial of the two, you know, look at a relationship and, and ask where the relationships break down. Which is a bigger intimacy breaker? The failure to do something I was supposed to do for you? Or if I went ahead and did something anyway I wasn't supposed to do because of you? We can always fall short of doing the things we're supposed to do for our beloved. I mean, it's not ideal, but I'm saying we were supposed to do it. We didn't do it. We forgot. We were lazy. We, we didn't do enough of the things we were supposed to do. And, and somehow, you know, the relationship can remain intact. But when there are those things that I'm not supposed to do because of you, where I was supposed to exercise self-restraint. I wasn't supposed to go there. I know you didn't want me to go there. You told me not to go there. You expressed your wishes, your limits, your boundaries. I violated them. Then it's very, very hard to keep the relationship intact. Furthermore, furthermore, the truth is, that if I don't have respect, if I don't have self-restraint limits, then not only am I lacking self-restraint, discipline, boundaries, which are essential to every relationship, but furthermore, what I will tell you is, I don't even really have love. I don't really have giving. Follow what I'm saying? So it's not only that respect is more important than love. Or let, 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 let's say like this. Respect without love can endure, but love without respect cannot. So respect is more important than love. But it's not only that, but I, I'm going even further now. I'm saying love without respect isn't even really love. What does that mean? Let's give an example. Let's give a few examples. Let's say like this, a husband, and you know, in this example, it's the husband. I'm not saying it's any particular husband. I'm not trying to pick on husbands, but in this case, let's let it be a husband. 
comes home three hours late for dinner without calling. What is that? He got involved in something important. Maybe it was even something, um, it wasn't fun, it was uh, some, some type of responsibility. And he ended up not calling home and telling his wife that he's going to be late for dinner, three hours late. That, that's a lack of respect. That's a lack of containment. Okay? I should have been able to stop, ideally stop, go home, and then go back to whatever I needed to take care of. Or at least stop, call, text, whatever, communicate, and then go back to whatever it was that I needed to take care of. So, husband comes home three hours late for dinner without calling. That's a lack of respect. Lack of boundaries and limits, self-containment, self-discipline. But, in this particular hypothetical scenario, he has, when he walks in the door three hours late for dinner without calling, he has a dozen roses. A dozen roses. That's love. He's doing something for her. In fact, let me add, she actually likes roses. In fact, he knows she likes red roses. He got the red roses. So he walks in the door three hours late without calling. And he has a dozen red roses. How does his wife receive the dozen roses? Does she feel loved? Why? Is she being spiteful? Is she not allowing herself? To appreciate the roses? Or is there something intrinsically difficult about receiving the roses in this scenario, under these conditions? So let's look at this a little bit. You know the story about the locks? Locks is a singular word, not plural, like keys and locks. The locks, the fish, the locks. You know locks? Salmon. There was a locks. The locks was swimming in the river. The fisherman caught the locks in his net. He pulled them out of the river, threw them in a bucket. And as he did so, the fisherman said, Oh, good. I have locks for the king. The king loves locks. And the locks thought to himself, splendid. The king loves locks. Get me to this, this locks-loving king. Because the fisherman, fisherman's cruel. He hates locks. He ripped me out of the river, took me out of my home, and put me in this prison, this bucket. He obviously does not like locks. But they say the king likes. In fact, the king loves locks. Get me to the king. He'll treat me right. So with the bucket in hand, the fisherman runs to the palace. He knocks on the door. The guard comes to the door. Who goes there? It's the fisherman. Why are you here? I'm here with a fresh locks for the king. And the guard says, oh, splendid, come in. The king loves locks. And the locks thinks to himself, get me to this locks-loving king already, the king who loves locks. And the guard runs through the palace halls with the 
fisherman and brings him into the royal kitchen. And he says to the chef, what are you doing? The chef says, I'm preparing the king's lunch. And the guard says, I think you're going to want to stop whatever you're making. Start over now because the fisherman is here and he has a fresh lox. And the royal chef says, oh, splendid. The king loves lox. We have lox. Excellent. Very good. And um, at that moment, the king walks in. And the, the chef says, King, you're going to be very happy. You're going to have a lox for lunch. And, and the lox hears this and he says, oh my goodness, I'm the king's guest. I'm, he's I'm, he's going to have me for lunch. I'm going to go home tonight and I'm going to tell my wife, hey, you never guess who I had lunch with today. Yeah, yeah I'm an important guy. Important fish. Yeah, I had... Lunch with the king, that's true. Yeah, did you know he loves locks? No, I didn't know that about him, but apparently he really loves our kind. So the locks is pumped about this, and at that moment, the fisherman hands the bucket to the chef, and the chef takes the locks, pulls him out of the bucket, throws him on the table, and takes a big cleaver, and knocks his hat off. And in his last moment of consciousness, the fish says, don't question it at this point, by the way. He had a reasonable suspension of dis disbelief till this point. So, and as he realizes, no, he, he's being killed now. He's going to be eaten for lunch by the king. Uh, as he realizes what's happening, the lock says, king, these people are all mad. They say that you love locks. You don't love locks, you love yourself. Sometimes when I say I love you, I don't mean I love you. I mean I love myself and I like how I feel when I'm around you, when I'm with you, when I get whatever it is I get from you. The king doesn't love locks, the king loves himself. Locks is something the king uses in order to give himself pleasure. It's like a bear in the woods. You know, you ever seen the bears in the woods? They can't uh, scratch their backs. So they find a tree and then they go and they lean against, you ever seen this, the bears in the nature films? And they rub up against the tree and they scratch their back on the tree and then when they're done, they walk away from the tree, you know. Nothing personal, there was no connection to the tree, just I needed to scratch my back and that tree works, you know. Bear just walks off and the tree's just stuck, rooted there. The tree's like, hey, where are you going? I thought we had a thing here. <laughs> the bear's like, no, no, I just... Need to take care of business, and I did. Thank you very much. And then the bear's gone. Okay, so the bear doesn't love the tree, and the king doesn't love the locks. And very often, when I say I love you, well, I don't love you. People say I love chocolate. I love chocolate. Did you ever see anybody jump into a river, in a freezing cold river, to save a drowning bar of chocolate? It's not. It's, not, it's just not that altruistic. But I love chocolate. I don't love chocolate. I love myself. And chocolate is a tool that I use to administer. Pleasure to myself. Okay. So think about it like this. 
we were saying before, if there's not respect, then even the love isn't really love. Why? Why? Why isn't the love love? Just say, there's no respect, but there's love. It'd be better if there's respect and love, but there's no respect, but there is love. I'm saying no. If there's no respect, then there's no love. Why? Well, I shouldn't say there's no love. There's no love of the other. If it were really about you, if I were really thinking about you, then that would have expressed itself in my having respect. I would have thought about not doing what hurts you. I would have thought about not overstepping the boundaries, the understanding of our relationship. And the fact that I did it anyway means I'm not thinking of you. So then why am I bringing home the dozen roses? Well, you know something? I got to tell you. Sometimes it feels good to be generous. It feels good to be loving. It's a good feeling. We like the warm fuzzy. Everyone likes to do. Loving is doing. Loving is giving. Loving is activity. Everyone enjoys doing, giving, being generous, and being recognized for being generous. Respect, you have to be a lot more mature because respect is not doing. Respect, by definition, is not doing. By the way, people confuse honor with respect. Honor is something you do. You honor somebody. You, know, you honor them. You give them, a, you know, give them recognition. Respect is a different word. Honor is not respect. Um, in fact, in the Torah, the commandment to honor your parents, there's actually two commandments, to honor and respect. They're two separate things. Okay. So honor is to show um, special status to somebody. That's one thing. Respect doesn't mean honoring them. Respect doesn't even mean you look up to them. Respect doesn't even mean you admire them. Respect just means simple boundaries. Respect means, whoa, hold on, don't go there. I don't like it. Step back. So I don't have respect for you. I overstep my boundaries in a seemingly minor way. I'm busy. I'm doing stuff. I didn't think to stop, or I, didn't, I, wasn't, I couldn't be bothered to stop and call, text, whatever. That's a lack of respect. Now I come in with the dozen roses. Those dozen roses aren't about you. They're all, they're all about me. I like the feeling of giving. I like the feeling of doing. It's fun to give. It's fun to do. What's not fun? is not giving, not doing, withholding, self-containment. And, and, and that's part of why the glue of the relationship is the self-containment, the self-restraint. That's part of why intimacy requires it. Because it requires maturity. Because it requires selflessness. You can do and be very selfish. You can do for someone selfishly and have the greatest cover. Right? That's the codependent, right? I'm the martyr. I do for everybody. But really, you're taking from everybody. You're taking that validation. You're getting that identity as the giver, 
the savior, the martyr, the Jewish mother, the one who takes care of everyone else's problems and never takes care of her own life. So, see, I, I, I used the Jewish mother to counterbalance the husband who came home late. I just wanted to not be sexist, so I, I'm distributing it evenly over the, the genders. Respect, withholding, you know, being still, you don't get attention for it. You don't get credit for it. If you do it right, you don't get credit for it. If you withhold, if you refrain, you were going to do something that was violating or out of line, and then you stop and you withhold. Nobody knows that you did it. Or rather, nobody knows that you didn't do it. Unless you say, like, oh, by the way, I was about to do something really inappropriate that was going to really overstep my boundaries with you and show you a total disregard for your privacy and space and, and autonomy, but I just want you to know I thought better of it and I'm, I'm not doing it. FYI. So it kind of defeats the point. You're kind of not doing it. Look in the Torah. There are 613 commandments. There are 248 do's and 365 don'ts. And, and it's not just a quantitative advantage that the don'ts have over the do's. It's also quantitatively implies also qualitatively. The bulk of our relationship with God is what we don't do. Look at the Ten Commandments. It's even more imbalanced. I think seven out of the ten start with thou shalt not. If you're into King James, if you want to say it in Hebrew, it's low. Don't do this, don't do that. The majority of our relationship is about boundaries. It's an interesting story. There was a, a, a Lubavitcher Chosid. By Lubavitcher Chosid, I mean a Jew from the town of Lubavitch, the actual town of Lubavitch in White Russia. And he came to America in the, in, the, in the 30s, in the 1930s. And now, in the 1930s, American Jewry was very, very assimilated. Even the, what we would call religious Jews of that day were very, I mean, you have to remember what it was like. Those who came over from the old country and they came to the Golden Medina and the opportunity, the, the freedom, the openness was just sort of overwhelming. Again, you see what happens when there's a lack of, of boundaries. Okay, so there was a Lubavitcher Jew from the actual town of Lubavitcher. His name was Rabbi Kazanovsky, and he was a rabbi in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, of an officially orthodox synagogue where nobody was particularly religious because they were American style. So he was speaking to some of his um, compatriots from, from the Altaheim, from, from the old country, you know, a landsman, somebody who was from Eastern Europe. And they asked him to describe the American Jews. And he said, you know, American Jews are very funny. They all know how to make Kiddush, but none of them know how to make Havdalah. Now what does that mean? You could, you could take this on two levels, and they're both true. One level is literally, 
they all knew how to make Kiddush. Friday night, you make Kiddush. I mean, who doesn't know Kiddush? Right? If I, if I walk into a group of Jews, irrespective of level of observance, and I say, join with me. Right? Kiddush. People know Kiddush. Havdalah. What's Havdalah? Havdalah is an obscure ceremony. Saturday night. Who, who, who's, who's still thinking about Shabbos Saturday night? So he, he meant literally that Kiddush was preserved. Friday night, you get a cup of wine, and maybe afterwards everybody goes to the movies or to their uh, athletics or the socializing or the country club or the restaurant or whatever it is. Kiddush they knew, but Saturday night, Havdol, they, they didn't know it. He meant it on a deeper level as well. Kiddush is from the word kadosh, which means holy. Kiddush is to sanctify or to proclaim as holy. When it's Friday night, when the sun goes down, when the Sabbath day enters, so we make Kiddush, which basically means, ah, this is the holy day, it's a day of holiness. Havdalah, when Shabbos ends, Havdalah literally means separation. To make a distinction that this was Shabbos, and now we're leaving Shabbos, we're going into the mundane week. So what he meant to say is, the American Jews, they don't have a problem saying Kiddush. They don't have a problem saying, this is holy, this is good, we can incorporate this, we can use this, we can make this part of our lives. That they know how to do. But Havdalah, separation, to draw boundaries, this they're very, very, very weak in doing. Let me ask you a question. Sandy Koufax. Sandy Koufax. I'm setting aside this has nothing to do with Jewish pride. I'm talking about as a baseball player, as an athlete. Sandy Koufax is known as one of the greatest pitchers in the history of baseball. Any sports writer, if you ask them to list the 10 greatest pitchers of all time, perennially, when a list is made, Sandy Koufax will appear in any sports writer's top 10 pitchers in history. He didn't have a long career because he burnt out his arm, but game for game, the no-hitters and the perfect games, Sandy Koufax is right up there as one of the greatest to ever pitch. Now, if you ask somebody, and again, setting aside Jewish pride, if you ask a baseball fan who's not Jewish, what game in his career is Sandy Koufax most famous for? What are they going to tell you? The one he didn't pitch, exactly. So nobody pitched as good as he pitched, or very few ever pitched as good as he pitched. The games that he pitched were like nobody else, or like very few others. What is he remembered for till this day? The game he didn't pitch. They did a, there was a dinner, a White House dinner, a few years ago. 
back in the Obama days. And Obama got up and said a joke, which obviously was written for him. That's not the point. But the point is, the President of the United States gets up and says a joke, and he says, Sandy Koufax is here tonight. Sandy and I have a lot in common. Sandy's a left-hander, and I'm a left-hander. Sandy can't pitch on Yom Kippur, and I can't pitch. Okay, corny joke, but the point is the President of the United States has to make a reference to Sandy Koufax, and what does he note? What is the easy joke, the go-to reference that everyone's going to get? He didn't pitch on Yom Kippur. So you, you, you want to know where the real strength is, where the real power is. It's very misleading to look because, you know, the doing and the giving and the generosity, all that, that energy is unleashed and it, it attracts a lot of attention, which is part of why we do it, because it does attract attention. And, 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 it, it, and it looks so interesting. But then if you, if, you, if you stop and you think, like, in the long run, in the long run, what am I really going to be remembered for? What value? What value have I really contributed? What statements have I really made? Overwhelmingly, it has to do with self-restraint, with discipline, with limits, with withholding, with respect. Now, it's hard to judge that because, like I was talking about before, it's hard to prove a negative. It's hard to say, you know, how many times I bit my tongue. And that one time I bit my tongue really saved the relationship. Because if I would have said what I was about to, well, it's hard to say that. How do you know? How do you know? And instead, what do we normally think? I mean, I say we, because it's human nature, that when a relationship fails, we, we automatically assume it's because of some lack of love. There's not enough love. We don't, no. and, and then we go scrambling, looking for how to prove our love, to inject more love. How are we going to do more? And, and the truth is, where relationships really suffer they don't fall apart because of a lack of love. They don't fall apart because people weren't doing enough for each other. I mean, we could always improve and do more for each other. But that's not what kills it. It falls apart because of a lack of boundaries, a lack of respect. You know, I was, I was speaking to... Uh, I was speaking to a group of what they call um, young Jewish single professionals on the Upper East Side. That's where I think it was. And it was a room full of a hundred young Jewish single professionals. And they were all talented and beautiful and smart and with it, a hundred of them, 50 guys, 50 girls. And they were all crying about the fact there's no one to marry. <laughs> and I got up there 
And uh, at first, I think they weren't really too interested in seeing a rabbi with a, with a big beard and a long coat. But I got their interest. I asked them, I said, hey, let me ask you a question. Um, how come good girls, like decent girls, like quality girls, they'll call their friend, their male friend, crying and saying, complaining about this guy they're dating, who's no good for them, and saying, you know, why couldn't he be more like you? And the guy, the nice guy on the other line, he's thinking, I'm more like me. I am me. Why can't he be more like me? Or date me. How come she goes out with the bad boy and the nice guy, he's left standing in the sidelines and uh, it's not fair. So then I had their attention. So I told them like this. There's a... Uh, there's an expression, a Jewish expression, a Hasidic expression. As ich bin ich, weil du bist du. Und du bist du, weil ich bin ich. Ich bin nicht dich und du bist nicht du. Aber as ich bin ich, weil ich bin ich. Und du bist du, weil du bist du. Ich bin ich und du bist du. Know what that means? If I am I, because you are you and you are you, because I am I, then I am not I, and you are not you. But if I am I, because I am I, and you are you, because you are you, then I am I, and you are you. It's a very deep concept. What does it mean? If I have identity, self-concept, self-worth, value, on my own, then I'm ready to enter into a relationship. But if I don't have those things, if I'm looking to figure out who I am and trying to find that in the love, validation, acceptance of another person, in other words, I'm I because you are you, and you are you, what's your role in my life, my source of validation, so you are you because I am I, I'm looking for a sense of self, I'm not I, you not you, we're just using each other. And that's the truth. But if I'm I, meaning I have a sense of who I am, I know what my principles are, I know what my values are, I don't compromise them in order to get validation from other people. So I'm I, you are you, we can have an actual genuine interaction. So I say to these young Jewish single professionals who I realized by the middle of the evening that truthfully they were young Jewish professional singles because they were all going to date endlessly and complain about it and hate it and never get married. They were professional singles. I told them, why does the girl get turned off from the nice guy? It's very simple. The nice guy looks like a giver. He looks like a giver. 
because he does nice things. Nice means you're doing sweet things and considerate things. Nice things. I said, you know what nice is? Nice is an acronym. N-I-C-E. Let me see if I get it right. Neurotic, insecure, clingy, and emotional. Nice means like this. Nice means he needs the validation that you have. Specifically because you're a woman. He needs that. He needs that. And he learned the way to get it, you know, in his first relationship with a woman, with his mother. You know what they say, Oedipus, Oedipus, as long as he loves his mother. He learned the way to get mommy's love is you be sweet and be mommy's little boy and everything's good. So he brings that into his adult life. And he is obligated to be a nice guy. He must be a nice guy. Because he's desperate to get the smile from that woman. He's desperate to get that validation. He needs, he can't, he's, he's no one without it. He tells her that, right? He's romantic. He, he says things like that. Like they say in the romance movies. And He says, I'm nothing without you. I'm nothing. If you're a 14-year-old girl and you're reading a romance novel, that's really cool. I'm nothing without you. If you're a grown-up woman, you're getting that as a text at 3 in the morning, I'm nothing without you. That's like, whoa, like, get a life. It's it's not cool, right? So the nice guy looks like a giver. He's not a giver. He's a taker. See, giving is for fun and for free. Giving is for fun and for free. A gift is I leave it and I walk away. I don't even look for a thanks. A gift means there's no payment, not even appreciation. It's not a gift. It's barter from the nice guy. The nice guy's bartering. You ever had somebody do something sweet for you and not realize that there was an invisible invoice that came next day in the mail? And now you're the deadbeat because you didn't see the invoice. You didn't realize the currency that that you were supposed to validate that. So he, he's, he's not giving, he's investing. And then when his investment doesn't pay off, he gets angry, indignant. He's so mad at this woman. How could I be so nice to you and you don't give? Hold on a second. Were you really giving or you weren't giving? If you were giving, there's no expectations. No, but it's, it's about decency. It's about being a considerate human being. Okay, maybe it is. Let's say she's not. Let's say she's not a mensch. Why are you indignant? Why are you so hurt? Why are you so devastated? Because you were looking for that deep validation. She's withholding something really important from you. Or so you think. Somebody once told me, we become addicted to the drug called approval, and then we marry our drug dealer. I hope that's not true in many marriages, but I think it's true in enough marriages that the saying can still be said and most people can relate to it on some level. So what he's looking for is that deep validation. That's, 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 that's not giving. That's an undercover way of taking. Now, From her perspective, 
So from his perspective, he's desperate because he needs that validation. Tell me I'm good. Tell me I'm okay. So he's frustrated. He's, he's angry. From her perspective, she's just scared. She's just nervous. She's scared. What is he trying to get from her? He's trying to get an identity? My dear Lord, a human being cannot give you that. She senses this. He's trying to get something from me that a human being cannot give to another human being. A reason to live? I can't deliver that to you. Don't tell me you're nothing without me. You can't be nothing without me. I don't have that power. So I, I, I was talking to the young Jewish single professionals, professional singles, and I, I said to them, imagine tonight you get out of this, uh, this building where the event was, and you're walking home, and it's in Manhattan, it's in the city. You know, it's very easy. You walk a few blocks, and you end up in a neighborhood that you don't know. So I said, imagine that you walk down a block, and... Um, Two guys come out of a storefront ahead of, you know, about a block ahead of you. And they turn out of the storefront and then they turn toward you and they're walking toward you. And as they get closer, you see they're two bodybuilders. Why at midnight are two bodybuilders walking down the... Because they're at a 24-hour gym. There's a 24-hour gym. These guys are pumping iron. Now they're walking down the sidewalk with their towels and their drink bottles, their squeeze bottles. And they're talking about their workout. Yeah, brother, that was great. Bodybuilders all call each other brother. No. Yeah, brother, that was a great workout. No, brother, you had a great workout. Okay. And they're walking down the street. Boom, boom, boom. So I ask the young Jewish single professionals, don't answer from here. Answer from here. Just be like, tell me your instincts. These guys are walking towards you. Is there any reason why you might want to go to the other side of the street, not to be the same side of the street when, when they pass? What, what, what does your gut say? God says, no there's, no, there's no threat. There's no problem. But these are strong guys. They could beat you up. They're not beating anyone up. They're, you know, no, brother, you had a great workout. You had a great, okay. All right. Now imagine you're walking down that same block and two figures emerge from ahead of you up at the end of the block and then they turn toward you. Except they're not leaving a 24-hour gym. They are leaving... Um, what is known as a 24-hour crack house. And they are crackheads, and they are 80 pounds soaking wet, each of them. And they are hobbling toward you, sort of skittish, and they're jittery, and they're walking toward you. Don't answer from here. Answer from here or from here. What are you going to do? Or what are you going to feel like doing it at, at, at the very least? You want to be on the other side of the street. Hold on a second. Those guys can bench 400 pounds. You're not going anywhere. These guys are 80 pounds soaking wet. What are you running? But you know something that our, our hearts and our guts know, that our minds confuse us about? Just on a, on a gut level, on a visceral level, what we know is that strength is not scary. Bodybuilders are not scary because strength isn't scary. Um, weakness is, is, is scary. The crackheads are scary because I don't know what they are liable to do. They could do anything. They're desperate. They are needy. And if they think I have something they need, or I might have something they need, I don't know what length they'll get to 
that they'll go to to get that out of me. Well, I told the young Jewish single professionals, nice guys, I got to tell you something. You are, with all due respect, the dating world's version of the crackhead. You're scaring people. Now, you don't think you're scary because you're not a bully, but your desperation is scary. So what's the alternative? What is the girl forced to do? She has to go out with this bad boy. You think she wants him? Thinks she likes him? She's not 14 years old. She doesn't want the bad boy. You know why she does it? Because he's also a user. But he's pretty upfront about what he's using you for. And, and, and it's not deeper than that. And he's not jumping off a bridge if you don't text him back. So yeah, he's a user, but He's not demanding an identity. He's not demanding, give me a reason to live. He's not trying to get out of me something that no human being can give to another human being. So she's forced, by lack of choices, to go out with the bad boy. And then, of course, inevitably, when he mistreats her and she feels bad about it, she does cry to the nice guy, and the nice guy feels like that's an injustice. And then everybody is sad and frustrated and heartbroken. And thank you very much. That's the end of my speech. Just joking. No, it's not. But it could be. For a lot of people, it is. There's another option. There is another option. There's not only nice guy and bad boy. There is a third option. They're very rare, but they exist. And the good news is that anyone can choose to be this. And this is called the good man. I call it the good man. Who's the good man? The good man, you know, like you're pre-approved for a mortgage. <laughs> Right? The good man is pre-validated. How is he pre-validated? The good man knows no human being has to give me a right to exist. No human being can give me a right to exist. My maker has given me all the validation I need. I'm God's child in all my imperfection, but I am his child his handiwork, and I know exactly who I am. And as the good man goes about his day interacting with other human beings, he does so selflessly, truly selflessly. He doesn't need anything from anyone. He doesn't need your thank you. He doesn't need your attention. He doesn't need your validation. If he's interacting with you, it's genuine. He wants to talk to you i got to tell you something, everybody is attracted to that. I don't, I don't just mean romantic attraction. I mean everyone wants to be in the presence of somebody who's not trying to get anything, who doesn't need anything. If he's talking to you, or she, could be also the good woman, that they're just genuinely present and enjoying themselves. And everyone wants to be around such a person. And I don't know any other way to be such a person 
other than through a relationship with God. I don't know what any other way to break the cycle of being dependent on others for validation. I know what people attempt to do. They become misanthropes. They say, that's it. I'm sick of people pleasing. I'm sick of all these people. They're ungrateful. I don't want people anymore. I hate people. I don't need them. I don't need them. I'll be a recluse. I don't need them. You see how long that, that lasts. I mean, we're meant to be social animals. We're meant to interact with each other. And so then he gets back into the interaction with others. But again, you know, it's just too hard to resist. He wants that validation, especially, you know, from the opposite sex. The women want the, or, you know, the truth is, I got to tell you, I'm not saying this just to be PC, um, but we have to be honest about today's culture. Um, people want validation for their sexual identity from both genders. I don't mean that in a, again, I'm not trying to be PC. Um, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were the first people to have self-consciousness. They ate from the tree of knowledge. And it destroyed their innocence. What did it mean? Before the tree of knowledge, they could just be free to be in the moment. And then after the tree of knowledge, it spoiled that. What, what, what was the knowledge? What, they became like the editors of Wikipedia? What was the knowledge that they got? They could win in trivial pursuit. The knowledge was self-knowledge. I don't mean self-knowledge like insight. I mean crippling self-consciousness. And that's why the first symptom of it was they became ashamed. Prior to that, they were not ashamed of their nakedness. It meant nothing. They were like a baby running around without a diaper. It was not shameful. And then they, um, then they became ashamed of their reproductive organs, specifically of the reproductive organs. That's what they, they made clothing to cover their nakedness. Self-consciousness is the blight of humanity. It ruins everything. Self-consciousness, ego, E-G-O, edging God out, is what prevents me from being in the moment as God is creating it. Makes me up here. Makes me be up here, being an observer of what I'm experiencing instead of experiencing it. The main place where self-consciousness is manifest is just like with Adam and Eve, sexual identity. If someone is in a group photo, I want to tell you, I want to illustrate to you how severe the curse of the sin of the tree of knowledge is. The curse was self-consciousness. You want to see how prevalent it is? How pervasive it is? You're in a group photo. Somebody hands you the group photo, or they post it on Facebook. You're looking at the group photo. Who's the first person in the photo you're going to look for? Yourself. Damn that curse. And what are you looking for? To make sure you look good. What does it mean, look good? Don't be coy with me. So it is very, very, very deep. It runs so deeply. And that's why everything crazy people do 
generally is about some frustration of this, of this need. Um, you know, crazy things people, crime of passion. What's a crime of passion? I compromise my values. I know this is not what I stand for. I, this is not right. And I did it anyway. Why? I wanted someone to validate me. Usually, usually, if you trace it, validate my sexual identity. The dating world is insane because of this. Insanity, absolute insanity. The most toxic. The, 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 the anger and the, the frustration and the betrayal and the. I told those young Jewish single professionals, I told them, I said, you know, we're all having a good time right now, but most people, they're either going home to cry tonight or they're waking up to cry in the morning. I don't know of any other way to get out of that cycle than to be a good man or a good woman who is pre-validated, who is emotionally autonomous because I don't need people to tell me I'm okay. I don't need people to tell me that I'm lovable, that I'm of worth, that I have value. I don't need people to do that. Not because I'm trying to be spiteful or trying to be better than that. It's because I don't need it. Now, the thing is, I like it. You know, it's like, I don't need to eat chocolate cake to survive. But if I happen to eat chocolate cake, I'm going to like it. If someone praises me, if they validate me, they say, hey, you look good in that tie. I'm going to like it. Freedom is I never have to do anything. I never have to make a decision in life based on the motivation. What's going to give me the highest likelihood to get that comment? Hey, I like how you look in your new tie. See, praise feels good. Validation feels good. It's all right. If it happens, it happens. But when I base my life, when I engineer my day on how am I going to get those credits, those emotional credits in my emotional account. Now I'm not even living my life. Now I'm not even me. I'm walking around trying to get little pieces of identity from, from all of you. And of course I end up hating you. Of course I'm resentful toward you. Because you're withholding my drug. You think anyone really likes their drug dealer? Well, they call him all night. They call him all the time. Yeah, because <laughs> they need to get high. So what's the solution? A guy one time called me up. He told me he'd been divorced four times. Not married four times, divorced four times. Because you could be married four times and divorced three times. He was divorced four times. And I don't know who he was. I don't know his name. I don't know where he was calling from. But he, uh, he told me his whole story. I listened. I listened. He went on for about an hour. He listened to his whole story. And then he tells me, so what do you think? And, um, oh, oh, and he had, he had concluded 
when he told me his story, he concluded, he says he was married four times, he was divorced four times, and he's, he's decided that there's a problem with women. And why? He, he said, there's a logical conclusion that he came to, because all four times he was married and divorced, it was with a woman. So therefore, there's a problem with women. I pointed out to him all four times he was married and divorced, he was the husband, but he didn't appreciate that. So he says, what do you think? What do you think it is? What do you think it's about? I said, honestly, you really want to know? I mean, I don't want to be hurtful, but I, I'll tell you what I, what I think. He says, yeah, tell me what you think. I said, I listened to your story, and um, I really think the recurring pattern, really the, the story you told four times, is you're just really, really needy from people. And that was your undoing. Um, and I tried to be compassionate about it. I wasn't blaming him for it. I was just saying, that's how I see it. And, and he got really, really upset. And he says, well, what am I supposed to do? I, just, I should go, I remember him saying, what do you want me to go live in the mountains in a cabin like the Unabomber? And it was so absurd. And I remember saying, what? Where, where, where are we getting? Where's Unabomber coming in here? Where are you even <laughs> getting that from? I said, you shouldn't be so needy from people. Oh, okay, so I should go live in the mountains and I'm going to eat tree bark. I, where are you getting this? I just said, don't be needy from people. Yeah, okay, so you told me to go be a hermit. And I said, you know what? I get that you think that you are saying back to me what I'm saying to you, but I'm not getting the connection. So how about we do this? This will help us, help me to follow the logic. I'm going to... Let's do an if-then statement. Then I'll see the cause and effect. I'll see the, the, the logical link. So I'll give you the if, and then you give me the then. Okay? But, don't, but you're not allowed to say Unabomber. You can't say live in, eat tree bark, live in, be a hermit. Okay, say something other than that. All right. If I, meaning you, this guy I'm talking to, if I will stop being so needy of people, then, he says to me, then why the hell would I be around them? I said, ah. Ah, okay. Now I got it. Now I got it. So he, he, he was a nice guy. He was. That's, that's, it's such... Such torture... Because you think you're doing the right thing. You think... You know the, the sense of betrayal and victimhood you have when you honestly believe that you are good and sweet and considerate and then people mistreat you and take advantage of that? Just... So what's the solution? The solution is not to be a hermit and live in the, in the forest, live in the mountains. But nobody, well, very few people actually do that. I'll tell you what people do, which is like the more socially acceptable version of going and living in the mountains and being a hermit. People say, that's it. I'm tired of being a people pleaser. It is toxic for me to do favors for people. I have to engage in self-care. I'm sorry. No, I cannot go to my mother's 80th birthday party. That's my time to go to the gym. That's me time. I'm engaging in self-care. 
Okay, I don't think, by the way, my, although I, I chose, I was particular to choose an example that I've not heard the exact word said to me because I don't want to betray anyone's confidence, even a stranger's confidence, that scenario is not outlandish compared to things I've heard people say thousands of times, right? Okay. And what is the thinking of the person who says, you know, I'm a, I'm a people pleaser and it's toxic for me to say yes to everyone. I have to say no. I have to have my boundaries. I have to engage in self-care. What, what is the error that they're making? The error they're making is, see, they think the problem was giving. Oh, I realize the problem is the giving. The giving is problematic. Because every time I got burnt, I was giving. Well, that's true. That is, that's, and on a superficial level, that's correct. And if I were shooting it with a camera, if I could just look at the actions, the behaviors, you know, that's what it looks like. You were giving and then you got burnt. I got, I got that. But let's go a little deeper. You know, let's look at what we can't see with our eyes. Let's look at what we can only feel with our hearts. And then know to be true. Every time you got burnt, you know, I, I, I had a grandfather, Oliver Shalom, who was a very, very scrupulous businessman. A very scrupulous businessman, like beyond what was required. And he used to say, you cannot con an honest man. The only one who gets conned is someone who's looking for a quick buck Okay, maybe they weren't looking to do something terribly egregious, but they always knew it was some type of easy money, and that's how they got the script flipped on them. So you look, every time I got burnt, being the nice guy, I was giving. Okay, yeah, but was I giving altruistically? For fun and for free? We all know what it means to sin without getting caught. This is doing a mitzvah without getting caught. Doing something nice and then getting the heck out of there before anyone can acknowledge you for it. And covering your tracks. Where did I get burnt over and over again? It wasn't from the giving. It was from the getting. That's what the burn was of the getting burnt. It was the letdown, the betrayal, the disappointment. Or like they say, you know... Expectations are premeditated resentments. I was looking to get something. Now, no, it's neither here nor there. Let's not stand on, on, on principle and say, well, that wasn't nice of them. That wasn't you know, what happened to decency, what happened to common courtesy. All that can be true. That's all true. But I'm asking right now, why was it devastating for you? Why did you feel particularly betrayed by it? And the reason is, if I'm honest... I was trying to get that, I was trying to get something, and it wasn't just something, it wasn't something little, it was something really important. It was tell me I'm okay. Take away some of my intrinsic shame. Take away just a little bit of my intrinsic shame for a moment. Tell me I'm okay. Tell me I'm good. Tell me I'm lovable. Tell me I have value. And, and, I, and I invested in getting that from you, and you took what I offered, and then you didn't give me that. You're a terrible person. That's what was toxic. So the recovery 
from the people-pleasing cycle is not to become the jerk who says, I'm sorry, no, I can't do it, I'm not going to do it, I'm not, you know, that's, I, have to, I have to take care of myself. That's not the way to recover from that. It wasn't giving that was toxic. It was giving in order to get that was toxic. The recovery from that dysfunctional state is learning how to give totally altruistically. And again, I don't know any other way to do that. There might be other ways. I don't know any other way to do that than to have a personal relationship with God. And by that, what I mean is, my father takes care of me all the time. He gives me everything I need. If I don't have it right now, that's the best proof. It's not something I need, at least for right now. Nobody can give me anything that I need. I'm pre-validated, and I'm taken care of. I'm taken care of. Now what happens? I'm free to interact with people because I want to. Or even, even better, I'm free to interact with people because I believe I might have something genuinely worthy to offer that I don't need to be appreciated for. I do it because my maker gave me a mission, gave me a purpose. Part of that purpose is giving the world my gift. And now all my interactions with people seem to just go a little bit more smoothly. All my relationships just are a little bit more, less drama, more stable. And where do I get that stability? I get it from my relationship with God. I don't need anything from people. I don't need validation. I don't need to be taken care of. I've got it. I'm good. You know what it means to say I'm good? I'm good means, you know, I'm taken care of. It also means I'm good, like something that has, is of, of, of good quality. So it means both. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. There was a book in the 70s, right? I'm okay. You're okay. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. It's the same idea. I'm good. Now, I'm just going to show up and I'm going to see what types of situations my God puts me into and where I have an opportunity to be of service, to be useful. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I check in with Him. That's the only one I'm accountable to. And I'm good. And I wake up in the morning. I report for duty, sir, ready to do another one of these days, and I'm good already. Yeah, I woke up, I'm, I'm good already. I'm, all good. I'm, I'm good. So I just want to go back to the, make sure that this is all clear, and then I'll put a cap on it, wrap it up for you. What this has to do with the giving, the doing, you know, the love, and the, the, the withholding or the not doing, the respect. Like I said, just want to make sure this is clear. Like I said, the relationship that has respect without love will, will be okay. The relationship that has love and no respect doesn't even really have love. Doesn't have respect or love. Okay. By the way, 
I was one time I was talking about this. I said I made that same statement, which is I know it's a categorical statement, and I've been told never, absolutely ever, make categorical statements. That was just a joke, by the way. That's like I told you a million times to stop exaggerating. Okay, never make categorical statements. So it is a categorical statement that any relationship where there is a lack of respect. So it's not only lacking respect, it's also uh, lacking love. So I mentioned this once at a talk. A guy in the middle of the talk, he says, Rabbi, I must disagree with you. I said, why must you disagree? He says, no, because it sounded like he was like morally obligated to disagree. Not, not I want to disagree. I must disagree. Okay. Why? He says, because I could think of a relationship where it's all love and there's no respect. I said, which one is it? He said, with your children. I said, how old are your children? He says, I have a son. He's five. I said, okay. Your five-year-old son, you come home from work, and your five-year-old son's sitting on the floor, and he is playing Legos. And you see him there, and he's looking adorable, and you bend down to scoop him up, to cuddle him, put him in a hug. And he squirms. Clearly, he, he, he doesn't want to be picked up. Don't, don't think, don't tell me what I want to hear, just answer me, just put yourself in the moment and just tell me, what do you do? And the guy smiles and he says, I hug him anyway. I said, okay, thank you, you proved my point. You just proved my point. You hug him anyway, he didn't want the hug, so who's the hug for? Is it for him or is it for you? It's clearly not for him, he didn't want it. It's for you. Now, he went ahead and did it anyway when he didn't want it. So that's a violation of a boundary. What boundary? Even a small child gets to choose when to receive physical affection. Okay, that, that's, a, that's an inherent boundary that a child has. Now, I don't believe, like some people, I think it's insane, they let children like set their own bedtime. That's, that's, that's preposterous. A parent sets the bedtime. Or you let a child run into the street. That's preposterous. You set the limits. But something like an inherent autonomy that every human being has, like I don't want to be cuddled. I don't want to receive physical affection right now. So doing it when he doesn't want it is a violation of a boundary. That's a lack of respect. And therefore, what do we see with that love? That love wasn't love. Because you weren't loving. You weren't really giving to him. You were taking from him. You were taking a hug from that child. That was taking. That wasn't love. So when there's no respect, not only is there no respect, there's also not love. So I want to make clear what this has to do with the nice guy and the, and the, and the expectations of premeditated resentments and the, 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 the people-pleasing and then the, the opposite of the people-pleasing. It's very, very, very simple. Ahava, the word in the Holy Tongue in Hebrew, that means love. Ahava means give. Have means to give. Giving, I mentioned earlier, by definition, is something that is seen, something that is observed, something that is external, and therefore potentially noticed by others. 
when I am desperate for others to notice me, I see what I do, I go into overdoing mode. I start gushing this miss, I would call it, it's not, it's not love, but it's this, this sort of warped version of love, and it's this desperate call to say, look at me, look at me. When I'm feeling pre-validated, when I'm at peace with myself, when I feel that Hashem, that God, my maker, has removed my shame, and I don't need any human being to tell me I'm okay, that's when I'm comfortable being still. That's when I'm comfortable not doing. That's when I am confident in my principles and, and my values. And in my own boundaries. The things I'm not going to do. And I'm just going to sit here. And no one will even know what I'm not doing. While I'm sitting here not doing anything. So the Beatles said all you need is love. And in the 60's. The hippies said. You know. Love is the answer. Free love. And then the hippies became. They wrote the child, in, the child parenting books and the you know, self-esteem and everything. And I want to tell you something. The, uh, it, was a, it was a... Hindsight is twenty twenty, but they killed a generation. They killed a generation. <laughs> self-esteem. You know what self-esteem is? Self-esteem is self-love. I love myself. I'll do stuff for myself. I'll always say yes to myself. Cut it. What about, what about self-respect? Will you say no to yourself? Do you have boundaries? Do you have standards? Do you have things that you won't do? So they sold us on self-esteem, which is self-love. Saying yes to yourself. I'm saying yes to myself. I'm saying yes to you. And, you know, the hippie boy asked the hippie girl, do you love me? She says, I love everybody. And we lost the self-respect. We can't say no to ourselves. And we can't say no to others. God forbid you say no to somebody else. They might not like you. And then who would you be if this person wouldn't like you? So, this is the bottom line. You are good. You're perfect. Not because I'm telling you that you are. I'm just telling you the truth. Nobody needs to give you permission to exist. Nobody needs to take away your shame. You have inherent worth. You don't have to do stuff for people. You don't have to prove your value to anybody. You don't have to spin your wheels trying to emit so much energy that maybe people will look at you and tell you, mm, it's all right, you're allowed to stick around here for now. You don't have to do any of that. You can be still. You can be quiet. You can take your time. And make decisions about your behaviors that are in keeping with your values and your principles. And it's between nobody but you 
and God. And when you do that, when we all do that, you know the wonderful thing? It becomes, ironically, it becomes so much more pleasant for other people to be around us. <laughs> so I wish us all good, steady, solid, deep, meaningful relationships with our maker and uh, consequently with, with each other as well. Sound good?